Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello there, Six Packers, and welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 38. The primary purpose of this podcast is to help Catholics learn how to apply church teaching to their daily lives. You six-packers are head and shoulders above most Catholics in terms of knowing, understanding, and living our holy and ancient faith. Still, it would be a disservice to you if I made the mistake of assuming that because you're six-packers, you do everything just right. That means I actually need to assume you don't always get things right and require a little extra help to get where you need to be in the getting things right department. Even if you do things just right, today's episode is one you can tell your Catholic friends and family about so they can give it a listen. After all, if they're not yet six-packers, chances are they need especially to hear this. I'll tell you what I'm talking about when I come back. What did Billy D. Williams the celebrated American artist Norman Rockwell and famed comedian Jimmy Durante have to do with one man's journey from conservative Judaism to the cross. Everything. Marty Barrick has lived one of the most fascinating conversion journeys ever told. In Calvary Road, Marty's biography, you can read about Marty's military service with Billy D. Williams, how Norman Rockwell helped him pass a college course, how in his deep abiding love for his late wife, Marty helped Irene travel the road of sanctity. How the times are quickly reaching critical mass for fulfilling prophecy concerning the Jews, and much, much more. Get your copy of Calvary Road by Marty Barrick today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, and Kobo. First of all, I want to say thanks for all the. Uh prayers and sacrifices you did so I could uh, improve in my uh, recovery from surgery. I deeply appreciate that, folks. Thank you very much. Now, to get back to the topic. After the Second World War, Pope Pius XII told the world that we'd lost our sense of sin. Now, that seemed like a pretty harsh judgment to most people back then, but the subsequent years and changing lifestyles have proven him right in a big way. All you have to do to see this is just make a careful observation of the way things are in your parish church. Prior to the neo-modernist infiltration of chancery offices and other influential posts after Vatican II, things in the local parish church look much different than they do today. Yes, there have been lots of cosmetic changes that have robbed us of any sense of the sacred, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's material for another episode. What I'm talking about are the various degrees of changes in practice. Contrary to popular belief, Vatican II changed absolutely nothing in terms of practice, faith, or morals. Anyone who tells you the Council made such changes is either completely ignorant of the facts or they're lying to you. In consideration of the Eighth Commandment, I'd rather believe they're ignorant of the facts and have never actually read the documents of Vatican II. I've read those documents. Trust me, the Council Fathers made no changes. Before the Neomods began trying to destroy the church from within, the way we went about doing things was much different. 
In parishes all across the country, Saturday was set aside as Confession Day. Almost all day a priest would sit in the confessional and absolve people from their sins. Believe it or not, priests spent very little time sitting alone in the confessional. In fact, most were busy hearing confessions for eight or ten hours. In addition to priests hearing confessions all day long on Saturday, not more than half of the people would receive communion at Mass on Sunday. Most of those who abstained from receiving did so because, for one reason or another, they'd missed confession the day before and knew they needed to go. So in the days prior to the attempted Neomod destruction, every parish church had long confession lines and short communion lines. Contrast that to today. Rather than hearing confessions all day on Saturday, most parishes have reduced the time for confessions to 15 to 30 minutes. After all, why should a priest spend all day waiting for penitents who don't show up? Communion lines today? Well, almost everyone at Mass on Sunday goes to communion, but most of them haven't been to the confessional in a very long time. Some of them for years, despite the fact that we all have to go to confession at least once a year during the Easter time. I can't judge the state of anyone's soul, but I can make a few assumptions based on my experience and knowledge of human nature. I've had the privilege of knowing a few saints in my time, but that's been rare. While I love the people of my parish church, I don't know a single one of them who will be a candidate for sainthood when they die. Therefore, in view of man's proclivity to often embrace evil over good, I have to assume most of the people receiving communion on Sunday are in desperate need of confession. Don't bother telling them that, though, because nearly all of them, quite arrogantly, believe they never do evil things. Of course, they're lying. They lie to themselves, to others, and most importantly, to God. Typically, I hear Catholics say either that they don't have a need for confession, meaning they believe their consciences are clear, or they don't go to confession because they just pray and ask God to forgive them. I've got some bad news for these Catholics. Objectively speaking, they've got an entire road crew of demons helping them pave their way on the highway to hell. The only thing I can say to Catholics who claim they don't need confession is that they really need to turn off their TVs, get their noses out of the device they use for texting, and actually rejoin the human race by focusing on the state of their own souls. They'll be very surprised about what they see. Catholics who say they don't go to confession because they just pray and ask God to forgive them couldn't be living further outside the realm of reality. The notion that they can independently ask God for forgiveness is Protestant thinking, and that is a thinking that's overcome Catholic thought. Yes, it's true that it's ultimately God who forgives sin, but since he's the forgiver, he can choose the way he forgives. The way he chose to do it is explained quite clearly in John twenty nineteen through 23. Let me set the stage for you. It was the first Easter Sunday night. Up to this point, the only person who'd seen the risen Jesus was Mary Magdalene. Peter and John had seen the empty tomb, but they hadn't seen Jesus yet. In fact, no one but Mary was convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. All the apostles, except Thomas, were back in the upper room where the Last Supper had been. The apostles were absolutely terrified. They were scared to death that the Jewish leadership was going to do to them what they'd done to Jesus, so they had the door and all the windows locked. Suddenly, Jesus appeared right in the middle of the room. 
He said, Peace be with you. The apostles were absolutely astonished and didn't believe their own eyes. So Jesus showed them his hands and his side. After seeing the wounds the Romans inflicted on him, they knew it was really Jesus' returned from the grave. Now they were overjoyed. After the commotion settled, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This passage is incredibly pregnant. The first thing we notice is that Jesus breathed on them. There are only two times in all of human history when God breathed on man. The first time is when God breathed life into Adam and gave him his soul in Exodus 2.7. This event in John is the second time God breathed on man, and it's a completely different sort of life he's breathing into the apostles. Jesus is breathing into them a very special power never before possessed by a human person. After breathing this new life by way of the Holy Spirit into them, Jesus handed on to the apostles his own mission that was given to him by the Father. Imagine that, the second person of the Blessed Trinity handing his power over to the apostles, men he had handpicked. What makes this so astonishing is that these weren't perfect men at this time. They were very flawed men, each carrying his own sinfulness. Peter, after boldly and arrogantly stating that he would stand with Jesus regardless of what happened, even at the risk of his own life, abandoned Jesus. He denied three times even knowing Jesus. When Jesus was arrested, all the apostles ran. They were all hiding for fear of the Jews and the Romans, even at this particular moment when Jesus is giving them his own mission. They were very flawed men, but despite their human frailties, Jesus chose them to take over his mission. And he spelled out specifically what that mission was to be. He said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He gave these terribly flawed men the power to forgive men's sins. More than that, he gave them the power to make a judgment call and not forgive those sins if they thought the sinner wasn't truly sorry for the sins confessed. Opponents of confession like to claim that confession was an invention of the church. Anti-Catholic writer Lorraine Bettner, author of Roman Catholicism, a book that Catholic apologist Carl Keating calls the Anti-Catholic Bible, writes that auricular confession to a priest instead of God was invented by Pope Innocent III and the bishops of the Fourth Lateran Council in the year 1215. This is the most generally held position by those who claim the Church invented the sacrament of penance. Even if the Church's opponents were to completely discount the scriptural references to confession, which they do, we should expect to find no historical evidence of the sacrament's existence prior to 1215. This certainly is not the case. There are many, many writings of early Christians dating to hundreds of years before the Fourth Lateran Council. St. Gregory the Great, who was Pope from 590 to 604, in his homily on John 2023, 20, writes, the apostles, therefore, have received the Holy Spirit in order to loose sinners from the bonds of their sins. God has made them partakers of his right of judgment. They are to judge in his name and in his place. The bishops are the successors of the apostles and therefore possess the same right. 
St. Caesarius of Arles, who lived from 470 to 542, writes, It is God's will that we confess our sins not only to him but to men. And since it is impossible for us to be free from sin, we must never fail to have recourse to the remedy of confession. In a sermon on the Last Judgment, the same saint tells us, to escape damnation by making a sincere confession from the bottom of our hearts and to fulfill the penance given by the priest. St. Leo the Great, who lived from 370 to 461, writes, God, in his abundant mercy, has provided two remedies for the sins of men, that they may gain eternal life by the grace of baptism and also by the remedy of penance. Those who have violated their vows of baptism may obtain the remission of their sins by condemning themselves. The divine goodness has so decreed that a pardon of God can only be obtained by sinners through the prayer of the priests. Jesus Christ himself conferred upon the rulers of the church the power of imposing canonical penance upon sinners who confess their sins and allowing them to receive the sacraments of Christ after they have purified their souls by salutary satisfaction. Every Christian, therefore, must examine his conscience and cease deferring from day to day the hour of his conversion. He ought not to expect to satisfy God's justice on his deathbed. It is dangerous for a weak and ignorant man to defer his conversion to the last uncertain days of his life, when he may be unable to confess and obtain priestly absolution. He ought, when he can, to merit pardon by a full satisfaction for his sins. The great bishop St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, tells his flock not to listen to those who deny the church has the power to forgive all sins. St. Ambrose, who lived from 340 to 397, declares that priests pardon all sins, not in their name, but as ministers and instruments of God. Paulinus of Milan, a contemporary biographer of St. Ambrose, explicitly mentions the fact that the saint heard confessions. He writes, As often as anyone, in order to receive penitence, confessed his faults to him, he wept so as to compel them to weep, but he spoke of the causes of the crimes which they confessed to no one but the Lord alone. Origen, who lived from 185 to 254, in his commentary on Psalm 28, writes, When you have eaten some indigestible food, and your stomach is filled with an excessive quantity of humor, you will suffer until you have gotten rid of it. So in like manner sinners, who hide and retain their sins within their breasts, become sick therefrom almost to death. If, however, they accuse themselves, confess their sins, and vomit forth their iniquity, they will completely drive from their souls the principle of evil. Consider carefully whom you choose to hearken to your sins. Know well the character of the physician to whom you intend to relate the nature of your sickness. If he judges that your sickness is of such a nature that it should be revealed publicly in church for the edification of the brethren and your own more effective cure, do not hesitate to do what he tells you. The great preponderance of evidence shows that confession wasn't a 13th century invention of the church, but that it had already been in place for centuries before the Fort Lateran Council. Still, opponents of the church on this issue, although they can't explain these early writings, continue to have a problem reconciling John 20:23 20, to anything other than confession. 
Many claim that Jesus is merely repeating his precept that we must forgive one another. But this presents a problem. It's true that Jesus taught throughout the Gospels that we're to forgive others who sin against us, but that's not what John 20.23 says. In this passage, Jesus speaks only to his apostles. He gave them the power to choose whether to forgive sins. Either he was contradicting himself in the passage from the previous admonishments to forgive seven times seventy, or he was giving the apostles a power never given to man before. Since he'd soon be ascending to heaven and no longer personally present to forgive sins as he had during his ministry, he gave this power to his priesthood by way of the apostles. As Carl Keating writes, if there is an invention here, it's not the sacrament of penance, but the notion that the priestly forgiveness of sins is not to be found in the Bible or in early Christian history. And it's actually the priest who forgives our sins. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that since Christ entrusted to his apostles the ministry of reconciliation, bishops who are their successors and priests, the bishops' collaborators, continue to exercise this ministry. Indeed, bishops and priests, by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, have the power to forgive all sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In any sacrament where a bishop or priest is the minister, he acts in persona Christi, that is, in the person of Christ. To put this in purely secular terms for a better understanding, bishops and priests hold a sort of ambassadorship. If the U.S. ambassador to Japan works out a certain agreement with the Japanese and signs that agreement, it's the ambassador's negotiations and signature which make the agreement binding. However, the ambassador has acted in the person of the President of the United States. That's the way a priest or bishop act in the sacrament of penance. He hears the penitent's sins and makes a judgment call regarding those sins, the penitent's contrition and willingness to repent, a power granted by Christ in 2023, then he grants absolution for those sins. Jesus gave his priesthood the power to forgive or retain sins in John 20, 23. In order for a priest to be able to exercise the power of absolution, he has to first hear the sins to determine if the penitent is contrite and intends to avoid those sins and their near occasions in the future. So what exactly does the sacrament of penance do for us? Well, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, if well-received, the sacrament of penance brings about a true spiritual resurrection, restoration of the dignity and blessings of life of the children of God, of which the most precious is friendship with God. The sacrament of penance restores or increases sanctifying grace, forgives our sins, obliterates eternal punishment due for mortal sins, helps us with an additional strength to avoid future sins, and restores all the merits that have been lost by the commission of mortal sins. The last obvious question about confession, based on what we've examined here, is whether a priest can refuse to grant absolution. A lot of people are shocked to learn this. Yes, he may, provided the penitent shows no sign of sorrow for the mortal sin he's confessed or if he indicates that he won't break with the sin. For example, a man confesses several acts of adultery because he has a mistress. The confessor tells him that the man must break off the adulterous relationship. The man refuses. The priest would 
actually have an obligation to refuse absolution in this case. That means the man would walk out of the confessional as much in danger of hell as he was when he went in. We've established that God only forgives sin and confession, yet few people go to confession these days. Most honestly believe they don't need it. That belief is indicative of a conscience problem. So let's talk briefly about that. Firstly, you need to understand that it's imperative that we follow our conscience. After diligent reflection, when we are certain something is the right thing to do, we must follow our conscience. But you need to keep in mind that we're responsible for all our actions because God gave us an intellect and free will. We must use them to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, which is to know, love, and serve God in this life so we can be forever happy with him in the next. To use the intellect and free will for anything contrary to God's law is an abuse of those gifts. So we have to rightly form our conscience. A right conscience is one in conformity with natural law, divine law, and the church's moral teachings. These laws and teachings aren't open for discussion or debate. You may not like a particular moral teaching, but that doesn't mean you can reject it. Morality isn't a cafeteria where you can pick and choose. To reject any moral teaching is to reject God himself, and that's to choose eternity in hell over eternity in heaven. A good example of what I'm talking about is contraception. By their own admission, 90% of Catholics practice contraception, despite that God says that's a mortal sin worthy of eternity in hell. Yet the same Catholics are in the communion line every single Sunday. Even worse, they compound the problem by adding the mortal sin of sacrilege with each communion received. Again, morality isn't a cafeteria where you can pick and choose. Okay, we've established that confession is how God chooses to forgive sin, not by praying to God for forgiveness. We've also established that we have to form our conscience to be in conformity with God's law. So I'll make you a deal. You go to confession this week and at least once a month from now on. In return, I'll begin helping you to form your conscience to be in conformity with God's law in subsequent episodes. I've been sharing the faith with people for over 30 years. The Holy Spirit has used me to make hundreds of converts, and 84 of them are my adult godchildren. When the Holy Spirit works through us in a big way, He usually uses the talents given to us before we were even born. When we develop those talents for Him, we're often impelled to pass on to others what we've done and how we've done it for the greater glory of God. That's why I wrote the Lay Evangelist Handbook. You might say the Lay Evangelist Handbook was 30 years in the making, because in this book I share with you all the best that I've learned about how to share the faith with laps and non-Catholics so you can bring your friends and family to the fullness of divinely revealed truth. The very first chapter gives you a thorough explanation of the things you need to do to maximize your effectiveness so you won't end up with egg on your face when trying to engage people. I explain the differences between the various types of lay evangelists and others you can learn from. I even talk about some statistics that should help give you a real sense of urgency for sharing the faith. Then I get to the step-by-step -step process for sharing the faith. 
I give a full presentation of the exact text I've used and refined for 30 years. I tell you what to do, what to say, and how to do and say it, while leaving room for you to work in your own personality and make these techniques your own. There's no other book like this on the market. So get your print or ebook copy of the Lay Evangelist Handbook today. It's available in print on cantankerouscatholic.com or in print and ebook on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to LifeSite News. The Facebook-owned Instagram has censored an ad highlighting a woman who chose life for her child despite being urged to abort to save her own life. This is why I don't recommend any social media except Mumblet. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 It's off to Convention of States. The Convention of States movement had their annual 2019 Leadership Summit recently. Speakers include Mark Levin, Senator Tom Cotton, Mark Meckler, and Pete Hedgeth. You can see all the highlights by clicking the link in my show notes, and I strongly recommend that all patriotic Americans do just that. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to LifeSite News. It would be a conservative estimate to say that more than 50% of our membership is LGBTQ, the head of the Satanic Temple said in a recent interview. That says it all. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number two. That's off to the Western Journal. I guess it must be a slow news period in America because the Washington Post found the need to investigate whether a small group of bigots is somehow influencing the pro-life movement. Spoiler alert, even though there's virtually no evidence to that fact, they still are. The title of the piece by Marissa Brostoff is pretty much self-explanatory. How White Nationalists Align Themselves with the Anti-Abortion Movement. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 1 Hats off to the blaze. A Colorado woman is suing after being forced to give birth alone in a jail cell, while deputies and medical staff at the jail allegedly ignored her when she told them that she was about to give birth. I saw the security video. (laughs) They're in trouble. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. A father gave a beautiful crucifix to his little daughter and said to her, Now tell me, Marie, what's the difference between the figure of Jesus on this crucifix and the host that the priest holds up at the consecration of the Mass? Maria didn't hesitate a moment or miss a beat. She said, When I look at the figure on the cross, I see Jesus, and he's not there. When I look at the host, I don't see Jesus, but he is there. Marie's answer was correct. Jesus isn't really on the crucifix she got from her father, but Jesus is really and truly present in the consecrated host at Mass. 
If a child can get that, why can't 70% of so-called practicing Catholics? Hey, Six Packers, that's all for this episode. I've enjoyed having you with me. Don't forget to like me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. The links are in my show notes. Also, remember to visit joesixpackanswers.com to sign up for my free email course. Each short lesson arrives in your inbox every three days. We also have the Cantankerous Catholic Social Media Group you can join to discuss anything about Catholicism, our country, or anything else on your mind. I visit the page every day. The link's also in my show notes. There are lots of other neat things of interest in my show notes, too. You can find them at cantankerouscatholic.com. And remember to live by the Joe Sixpack battle cry. Comfort and conviction don't live on the same block. This has been the Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.